you know, this statistic that has just fascinates me that people that are struggling with mental health related issues in distress are more likely to go to a clergy first before a mental health care provider or physician. Yet less than 10% of clergy ever make a referral. So the majority of people with mental health problems in the United States never receive any treatment. That's just a fact. But we have a God sending them to us. And in this mass shooting thing is just a symptom of our fallen, broken world. Uh, and we have an incredible opportunity, both through through mental health uh, access issues that the church can be involved in, and through the transformation of families and, and individuals and the circumstances that they live in to really impact that. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. On the show today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Matthew Stanford, and we're going to be talking about how the church can prevent violence, and this is a response to the Uvalde school shooting. In this episode, we're going to be talking about this tragedy and a few others, so I wanted to open up with a trigger warning. This is not an easy topic to talk about. It, this tragedy, it is so heartbreaking. And as a mom of two young girls in grades three and five, I couldn't even imagine the despair and rage that these parents must be feeling. And I'm recording this on May 25th, 2022, just a few days after the shooting. And I had an opportunity to connect with Dr. Matthew Stanford. He, we originally were going to be talking about his newest book titled Madness and Grace. And this is a practical guide for pastoral care, those who are in pastoral care, and to address serious mental illness. And this was going to be for a podcast later in the summer. But I learned that Dr. Stanford has spent much of his career researching aggression and violence. And he was equally eager to switch gears and respond to this tragedy with some practical ways the church can be part of the solution and help end this horrific violence and, and these mass shootings. Several tragedies are named and discussed in this episode, and these traumas have a ripple effect. You may be personally involved in a tragedy, and this could bring up experiences from the past and for some pretty strong emotions. Or maybe you're a community member desperate to take action, or you're a citizen like myself, or even global citizen, a human being who are who's angry about the evil that has been on display. Every one of us are impacted in some degree, and trauma is like that. It's sticky. Despite trying to avoid it, it sticks to us and carries it with us. It can interrupt our thoughts or surprise us with out-of-character emotions. So when you listen to this episode, don't be surprised if you too are impacted. And if you are, please recognize it for what it is. It is trauma and it's part of being human. So give yourself compassion. This is really hard. This is not, we're not meant to, to process this. We're not meant to experience this. And then if possible, decide how you're going to process it. 
For some of us, it's in journaling or walking in nature, prayer, or spending some extra time snuggling your kids. Do what you need to tend to your heart and to your grief. And then, if possible, apply meaning to what you've experienced. What action are you going to take to prevent this from happening again? You are not powerless. You're able to create a different ripple of change. In this episode, Dr. Stanford speaks of four ways the church can help prevent violence and be a part of the solution. And surprisingly, his suggestions can be done by individuals. You don't need to have a full organization to have impact or, tra- or, or, or support transformational change. In fact, what creates the biggest change is when individuals seek out others who are marginalized, at risk, and needing support and offer belonging, purpose, and hope. While this is a hard conversation, we need to have it. So thank you, Dr. Sanford, for joining me today and being willing to have this difficult conversation. I appreciate very much for you being able to speak to what has happened and transpired in the last week. Um, Just for everyone, uh, for a heads up or a trigger warning or notification, we're going to be talking about the tragedy that happened at Uvalde in Texas. There was a school shooting and uh, we were originally going to be speaking about your book, Madness and Grace, which we definitely can reference because there is a fantastic chapter in there for the whole resource is fantastic for churches and for pastors. Um, But you have a chapter in there specifically about violence that I think would be a really, um, it's really pertinent and really valuable to talk about um, today. So thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm sorry that we have to, sorry that we have to talk about something so tragic. It is awful. And I have to say that I went to write the intro to this podcast a couple times this morning and uh, welled up because I have a daughter who, I have two daughters, one in grade five and one in grade three, and I live in a small town as well. So I was like, oh, this, this, could be any one of us, which is so unfortunate to think that this could be any one of us. That's really sad to think about. That's really disturbing to imagine you would drop your child off at school and they would never come home. So, Mm. um, you know, but I think that we have to, you know, I actually went home very angry yesterday after this. I've been very angry about most of these that have occurred more recently. I mean, I've studied violence most of my career as a, as a researcher and uh, this is, you know, this is preventable and um, you know, we're sacrificing our children and, uh, and our fellow human beings uh, on the altar of supposed personal rights and uh, preferences. Uh, And, you know, frankly, I'm really disturbed at the way the church has reacted to this as well. So let's get into this. In the news, um, people are often, when it comes to these uh, these tragedies, people are often depicted as um, having uh, serious mental health or mental health problems. Uh, is this is this first? Is this an accurate depiction of someone who would be um, perpetrating this awful violence? Yeah, I mean, I think that, no, it's not. that That's not the accurate, uh, you know, if you look, I mean, there's a lot of data uh, on this. I mean, there are there are huge databases on all the mass shootings that have ever occurred. And typically a mass shooting is defined as a, a shooting at one or more places that are, you know, close, that happen in a very close period of time in which four or more people, not including the perpetrator, is killed. So that's that's how it tends to be defined. Uh, and, and hundreds of those happen in the United States 
uh, every year, unfortunately. But we only hear about these kind of rampage killings like this happened at Uvalde. Uh, and no, the majority of individuals who have committed these uh, offenses um, do not have a de definable mental illness, like a mental disorder, because I think that is the presentation is that, you know, this young man that did this must have a mental disorder that caused him to go and, uh, uh, and kill these children. It, does mental health play a role in this? Absolutely. But as far as mental disorders go, uh, that really is an issue. There certainly have been examples of that. The gentleman who uh, shot uh, individuals at Aurora, Colorado in the theater, he was a, a schizophrenic uh, who was not taking his medication. So you have examples of that. But more often than not, uh, the majority of these are driven by domestic violence. Mm. Uh, there is a domestic violent component. Uh, a large subset of them have to do with some type of racial hate. Uh, and so there's only a, a small subset where uh, it's not clear what the motivating factor was and maybe mental health what was perhaps more involved, although mental health is involved in all of them, but not a, a diagnosable mental illness. People with mental illnesses are actually more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators of violence. That's, I believe that to be true as well. Um, in my experience, they are often victims or targets of prejudice right. and, and, and harm and harm for sure. And research clearly demonstrates that. So mm -hmm. we don't have to guess on these things. I mean, that's what just really makes me so angry is that we know what to do to stop these. Uh, and yet we don't do that. And I, in the United States is is very unique in this. I mean, they have certainly occurred around the world, uh, but they don't occur at anything like the frequency they occur in the United States. And in most countries where they've occurred, like for instance, in, in, uh, in England or in Australia, where they had a, an event that occurred like this, uh, the government uh, and the citizenry have been taken a, a stance uh, and they basically have eliminated those completely from their from their culture. Uh, yet in the United States, we just see more and more and more of all the mass shootings that have ever occurred in the United States. Fifty percent of them have occurred since 2000. Wow. So. Do you find that things are um, escalating as far as frequency and aggression? Oh, absolutely. But yeah, there was a report, sadly, there was a report that just came out on Monday uh, of uh, a new analysis of the data that demonstrated that there's been a dramatic ex escalation over the last few years, uh, but also looking at uh, shooting since 2000. So there was an escalation since 2000. There's been a dramatic ex escalation since 2019. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're just seeing more and more and more of these happening, uh, you know, with a, in a much faster frequency of happening as well. And, and as you and I mentioned earlier, as we were talking off before we started, uh, there is a real contagion that goes along with these. Again, research clearly demonstrates that when there is a high profile mass shooting that occurs, the likelihood that another mass shooting will occur within two weeks is extremely high. Uh, and this is exactly what we happened 10 days ago or 11 days now, 10 days ago from this event yesterday, we had this shooting in Buffalo, New York, where this individual went in and shot African-Americans because of racism. Uh, and here we are 10 days later, we have a guy goes in and shoots a school. Same thing happened when Parkland, there was a shooting in Parkland, Florida. Uh, and then just a few days or just less than two weeks later, there's a shooting in Santa Fe, Texas at a high school. So it's very common for these things to occur. 
like that. Uh, and the media, again, plays a role also in kind of proliferating these types of things. Um, I guess you mentioned that, but what is there another motivating factor of why these are, um, I don't want to say minimized, but cast off or characterized as an issue of mental illness? Well, I think that, I mean, in the United States, again, the United States is pretty unique in that we have this uh, Second Amendment, which was written at a time uh, when we did not have a standing army uh, and before there was anything like a high capacity handgun and things like that, which basically gives us the right to have weapons uh, so that we can defend our country uh, was the thought. Uh, and so uh, because militias came together and we formed an army and we fought off the British and, you know, we can get into this whole thing. I come from Texas where, you know, and hunting is a very big deal. And um, I don't have problem with people owning guns for hunting. I, that's not an issue. Uh, the problem is, is that we have more guns in the United States than we have people. Uh, we have 400 million guns in the United States. And, um, you know, people aren't walking into, uh, you know, Uvalde, this elementary school in Uvalde with a, with a hunting rifle. I mean, they're walking in with a high capacity handgun uh, or an assault weapon, uh, which is modeled after a military weapon. There's no reason other than to kill than to have those. And so, so you know, it, when you start to look at factors, I think, you know, or why people want to kind of push it off a of mental illness, I think there's really two things that happen in the United States. One is, you know, once somebody once said to me, because again, I've studied violence my whole career and, you know, do a lot of research on that right around that. Uh, people say, well, isn't it just, isn't it just mental illness for someone to kill someone just generally, you know, for you to want to kill someone? And I guess, you know, I understand that, but it's not mental illness in a diagnosable sense, the way we talk about it from a mental health perspective. Uh, and I think the second thing is it's a deflection. It's a deflection to say, oh, well, those are just mentally ill people. And if we could just kind of push the mentally ill people all together and kind of keep them away from guns, we wouldn't have a problem anymore. Uh, and that's just ludicrous. I mean, it's uh, any, uh, any politician that would say that doesn't know, have any idea what they're talking about. I mean, they have no idea what they're talking about. Again, people with mental illness are more likely to be the victims. They're taken advantage of because they're mentally ill. Not they're not out perpetrating these crimes. Uh, and so, uh, so I think it's a deflection, and I think that it's also just kind of a people in the general population desperately trying to understand how could someone walk into a school and shoot innocent children that did nothing to them. Um, you know, you certainly could understand if somebody attacked you or somebody was in your home, or even if someone did something bad to you and then you decided you're going to go harm them. You might never do that, but you could understand that anger. Uh, but dis displaced anger towards children, um, that seems like insane. People try to rationalize so I think how could this possibly happen? Why? What would provoke someone to do something this? And because... Right. And it's disturbing uh, to imagine that a person that isn't mentally ill could do that. Because that that's, it really suggests evil. I mean, it suggests a, a level of, of kind of kind of malevolent, kind of ugly that you just don't want to imagine is sitting next to you at the library. And why you said you that the I mean? majority so. of those with mental illness are not violent, they're more often victims of violence. Um, are there cases or signs where people should watch out for those who have a history of violent behavior? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as a, that's the, the great question. I remember when I was at the University of New Orleans, you know, I, I ran a, a clinic there and we offered um, violence assessments for the court for, uh, particularly for child custody, you know, where one of the parents said that the other, you know, parent was violent. And, you know, there, there's, a, you know, and, and I think that that's a very valuable uh, thing to do. Obviously, I was doing it, but sometimes it was almost laughable, laughable in that an individual would be sent to us who had a long history of violence. And the court would have sent us a letter that said, could you please tell us the likelihood of this individual committing violence? And, you know, so, you know, the number one predictor of future violence is past violence. Okay, so past behavior is always your best predictor of future behavior. Now, that being said, uh, there's also kind of, you know, I, I just like in Madison Grace, when I, I have an assessment in there that, that a pastor or a lay counselor could do with somebody to try to get a feel for what the risk of violence is. And it's not a, you know, it's not a perfect prediction, but you kind of look at it as like a, a set of uh, building blocks, you know, I mean, men are more likely than women to commit violence, okay? I mean, very few, I think less than 6% of all mass shootings, for instance, we're looking at that, were committed by women. It's almost always men, okay? So men are more violent than women. Um, individuals that are involved in substance abuse are more likely to be violent than those who aren't. So you start to kind of, you know, so I have a whole long list of things that you look at in the individual you're working with and you kind of say, okay, well, out of these, how many ever things mm -hmm. there are, 10 or 12 things, this person's got eight of them. Well, that's a higher risk than somebody who just has one. So I think we have to kind of look at it that way when we're talking about people with mental illness, certainly somebody who's in a delusional state that feels that they are being persecuted or people are out to harm them. I've had clients that felt like there were people that were going to kill their children or were going to do something horrible to them. And they, they were trying to hide from these people that weren't really there. They just believed that. Yeah, there's certainly the potential there because of that delusional uh, state. But again, there's so many people that have mental illness that never commit violence. It, it's so much more common than people who do not have mental illness. You know, if somebody's ever committed domestic violence, that's a tremendous marker mm -hmm. for future violence. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Well, I mean, you know, if you, you've really crossed some boundaries there. You know, I think that... Uh, and then you oftentimes are put right back into the situation with the person that you victimized. Uh, and that person often, because of the kind of psychological trauma that they've dealt with, really finds it impossible to leave the situation. So in some sense, if you think about it, you know, I, you know, let's say I abuse my wife, uh, I physically abuse her. She calls the police, the police, you know, tell me I have to leave or they take me away and I come back uh, and I'm able to go back to the home and and I'm able to be near her. Maybe she doesn't get a restraining order against me because she's, you know, we have children or whatever. In some sense, I'm kind of mm -hmm. rewarded because I did it and there, there aren't really all those pre, uh, you know, kind of a mm -hmm. repercussions of what I did. So, uh, you know, there's also this kind of, you know, patriarchal kind of like, you know, I'm the man and I can do what I want with my woman kind of a thing. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of that type of stuff that goes on as well. Uh, but again, a, a vast majority, well, I should say a majority of these mass shootings mm -hmm. that occur, and not I'm not just talking about like what mm -hmm. happened with Uvalde, I'm talking mass shootings broadly defined, are domestic violence. In fact, in, the, in Madison Grace, in the chapter, one of the reasons I wrote that chapter in that book was because um, 
you know, I see a move in churches to here in the U.S. to arm their ushers the best. to do these. Oh, yeah, I, I know. I literally know organizations that that's what they do. They train uh, kind of lay security teams at churches and they arm them. And and with this idea that somehow uh, that's the important thing the church should be doing is trying to protect itself. Well, there's only been 11 church shootings. OK, and so in the U.S. Uh, and uh a third of those were straight up uh, domestic violence. The person went to the church. The people at the church knew the person. They went there to kill uh, their loved one that was there, usually an estranged spouse or girlfriend, uh, and they ended up killing other people as well. A third of those were straight up racism. Someone went to a synagogue. Someone went to a church that was of a different race. And they went to kill those people because they were of a different race or ethnicity. And a third of them, it's unclear why uh, that happened. These are church-related shootings. But almost mm -hmm. none of them is there any formal history of the person having a mental illness. So the thing is, is that we've completely lost it here in the U.S. We, uh, we're, we're not being the church. We've become a politicized figure. Uh, we, we've lost our credibility. Uh, and uh, the opportunity is there for us to change that. I mean, domestic violence is a primary key in this. We need to focus on marriages. Um, racism is a big key in this. We need to focus on making sure that we do not accept racial rhetoric or racial overtones uh, in our churches. And we preach against that uh, because that's not of God. And so we have a lot of opportunities uh, to deal with this and help with this, but I still see us doing it. You know, it, it's just, it, it, this isn't about politics. This isn't about, you know, where you're from. This is about human life. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, we have this big abortion argument going on right now in the U.S., and we have for many decades, but we've particularly kind of welled up recently. You know, we say we're pro-life. You know, Christians, we say we're pro-life. Well, that has to do with all life mm -hmm. and, and from every aspect. So, um, you know, I, I am pro-life, but, uh, you know, because I'm pro-life, I also don't believe in the death penalty. Uh, because I'm pro-life, I don't believe that we should, individuals should be able to walk into a school and shoot 20 people, you know? And so, you know, we, we got to really start to back up our, uh, you know, our, what we're saying with some action. In what you've observed, what would be the role of the church? You identified talking about marriage. You identified talking about racism. And for the people who are, are watching or listening to this episode, they're often pastors, they're ministry leaders, they're care providers or care directors, small group leaders, perhaps even. So what would be, um, is there, you know, we often think of prevention and post-evention. What would the role right. be for the church in this? Uh, in 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 preventing violence or or and then in the post violence aftermath, what would the role of the church be? Yeah, and that's a great question, and that that's where I again I think the answer is very easy. So I would say that again I'm talking about the U.S. So you know, but it, it kind of generalizes. I think there I think as a as an aggression researcher, I think there are four major factors or or kind of topic areas that drive this. One is the access uh, to weapons. Uh, the access to guns make this much more lethal. If that young man who walked into that school yesterday had had a knife, he would not have killed 19 children, okay? Uh, it, he would have been stopped before he, so, so the easy access to weapons. So maybe a, 
maybe a church doesn't have a, a huge role to play in that, mm-hmm. but they need to at least as 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 Christians, every individual and as citizens, every individual needs to ask themselves, who do I vote for? Who do I who do I believe is going to to make an impact there? But here are uh, a couple of things they can really be involved with. Number uh, the second factor that drives us: mental health. And it's not just mental illness, mm-hmm. but it's like hopelessness. And it's, uh, you know, people, children being bullied and, 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 you know, and substance use and things like that. And so in the, in the world today, when a person is in psychological distress, they are more likely to engage a clergy before they go to a mental health care provider or a physician. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to the church and that's for people who are believers or non-believers. So every church should be equipped to deal with people that are struggling with mental health related problems. They should have uh, an an ability to recognize those problems. They should have some connection to the mental health care system to help refer them. They should have restorative programs like support groups or mental health coaching or things like that. Uh, And that's one of the reasons I wrote Madness and Grace. It's just a step-by-step manual on how to set that up in your church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and just to kind of, kind of plug what we do here at the Hope and Healing Center, if you'll just go to, you know, mentalhealthgateway.org, mentalhealthgateway.org. We have all the training there for free. All the curricula are there for free. You can just have your entire church trained on how to be an equipped church on dealing with mental health issues. So if people can access care through the church, uh, then they're less likely to act out on these kind of things. Another thing is psychosocial factors, like I mentioned before, like domestic violence, poverty, um, issues like that, things that kind of you know, trauma, things that are affecting these individuals over time and, and altering them and bending them. So churches working on strong marriages, not just to those who go to their church, but offering that to the community around their That's church, good. churches that have addiction ministries, churches that deal with poverty, that help individuals kind of make ends meet and kind of, you know, taking that kind of stress out of the life of those children. I mean, they're so, you know, offering tutoring uh, you know, every church should have should be associated with schools in this area where they offer tutoring in the afternoon to help kids who have parents who are both working or single uh, parent families so they can help them get through school, get educated. None of these shooters that have ever done this came from a perfectly pristine background. They come from trauma mm-hmm. and tragedy and pain and we need to step into that. So, so I think that you know, offering the mental health related ministries and being there to serve, God is sending these people to the church. So we need to be ready. It's one of the things I tell churches all the time and pastors is I'm not telling you to set this ministry up so they'll start coming. I'm telling you they've already been coming for seven decades and you haven't been equipped to deal with it. So we need to get equipped to deal with it because God's sending them. And then dealing with these other things that we already talk about healthy marriages, healthy children, getting out of poverty, you know, all these, getting educated. There's all those types of things. And then the fourth thing, so that's guns, proliferation, mental health, uh, psychosocial factors in the environment and, you know, in society. And then the the fourth thing is the media. The media has a huge uh, role to play in this because of the contagion. They should not be, and again, the church can't really deal with this, but they should not be saying the names of these individuals. They should not be putting their picture on. They should have a standard uh, blanket way that they report about this because really what they're doing is they are they are mythologizing these people into some kind of anti-hero. Uh, and that's why there are copycats. 
as I mentioned to you, just as we were beginning, I'm here in Houston, Texas. Um, I, I just get a, a thing on my phone that says in the school district that my son goes to, he's in high school, a child has brought a gun to another high school and, that, and he's been arrested. And, and, and then I, I get a text from my wife that said three children have been arrested at a high school north of Houston. They brought and guns this is today. Uh, to school today. This happened today, the day after Uvalde. So they obviously are trying to get some notoriety. I don't know that they were going to shoot up the school. That's not what I'm saying. They're trying to show off to their friends. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's a problem there. And so the, the media kind of promoting this the way they do, uh, it, you know, it becomes kind of an anti-hero type of thing. So the church has a huge role to play here. We have an opportunity to absolutely transform society and be relevant again. We've become inclusive. We've become cloistered. We've become kind of the, you know, we fight against everything that's not inside. You know, if you want us come in here, we need to get out there uh, and say, hey, we've got an answer for this. Uh, and we're willing to get dirty uh, trying to change the, the world that we're in right now. Mm. That's so good. So those are prevention strategies. Many people when think of tutoring, um, speaking about, um, you know, having after school care or looking at supporting those in their community around poverty and socioeconomic factors, they wouldn't think of that as prevention for violence, but yet you're saying it is. So that's really interesting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, a child who has no hope that they're going to be able to get anywhere in their life that, you know, their, their parents are struggling the parents maybe are broken up, you know, maybe they even know their father they're, they're in poverty. Uh, they look out into the world and they see no opportunity to get ahead. They only see everyone that's against them. Um, well, why not go shoot somebody? Why, you know, why not uh, commit suicide? I mean, you know, these are preventative for suicide as well. These are preventative for later criminality. I mean, that the, again, I'm, I'm not just, you know, this isn't, I'm sitting in my office right now. This isn't just something like I sat in my office and I kind of came up with all this. The, the reality is, is that you could fill this office a hundred times over with the research that demonstrates. That. And that's why I said earlier, we know what we should be doing, but no one really is brave enough to do it because our politicians are only concerned about staying in power. And that's whether they're on the right or the left, it doesn't matter. They're both to blame. Uh, and, uh, you know, and our churches have become so fearful of the world uh, that, uh, you know, we've decided that we're going to kind of hide ourselves together. You know, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, we're, supposed, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we are in the world for a reason. God has placed us in this world for a reason, and that is to be involved in his transformation of it in this temporal sense. And uh, the transformation does not occur through, you know, I once heard someone say, you know, I'm not looking for my savior to fly in on Air Force One. I already have a savior. And so, and I really like that because, you know, we're not going to change the world through politics. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit changes the world one heart at a time. Uh, and that's how God's decided to do it. And, and I got to trust that he knows what he's doing. Uh, but, uh, you know, he uses us as the church in that as part of that role. He's honored us by doing that. And we mess up and that's fine. You know, his will is done, but we've got to do better. I mean, we are, we are part of the issue here. The church has got to step up. This is our opportunity. 
this is a, a accumulation of mental health issues, socioeconomic issues, and, and we have a role to play here. Uh, God has given us an opportunity. Uh, and I do believe that we'll be held accountable uh, for whether we step up or not. So we have opportunities for prevention. Absolutely. The church has a role for that. Can you talk about postvention? What happens? What is the church's role? Um, you know, since the beginning of time, there's been violence. You identified bullying. You identified domestic violence. You identified um, suicide. These are all violent acts. And and likely will continue, you know, we live in a broken world. Uh, so what is the role of the church, of the pastor, of the care provider within the church to support those who either been victims or I guess even perpetrators? Like there, there's a role to play there. Their perpetrators are still kingdom child of God, but as an organization or as a care provider, what is the opportunity for the church in postvention? Yeah, I mean, I think we get back we get we get back to mental health there. I mean, I I've done many presentations uh, at conferences and churches around the country where I I talk about you know, mental health is the great mission field of the 21st century, and trauma is the key component. Mm. And uh, trauma opens doors not just locally, you know, in the, in in the country you're in, but globally. I mean, I spent years working in Libya as a as a out, open, overt Christian working with the organization, but we were working with traumatized civilian populations during the revolution. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it opens doors for you to, to help care. So, you know, a large per percentage of people with substance use problems have trauma, domestic violence uh, victims traumatized, uh, human trafficking, which is a very hot topic in, uh, in the church, horribly traumatized. So there's a huge role for the church to play in kind of kind of post-traumatic experiences. So we already send uh, teams into natural disaster areas to deal with those. Usually we deal with the more of a physical, the physical needs like water and food and things like that. But you know what, what we do, if you'll go to that website, you'll see we have a support group there uh, called Hearts Transform, which is for people that have been traumatized in some way. You know, so imagine if when you send those teams in, so you send a team into Hurricane Katrina, you send a team wherever, uh, those teams not just provide water and shelter and food and things like that, but they also begin to work with the traumatized population. And it's the same thing here, being able to offer trauma groups for uh, or trauma care or trauma lay counseling, pastoral counseling for women that have been the victims of sexual assault and domestic violence, children who have been abused, uh, you know, uh, substance users who've had an abusive history. I mean, so there's a lot of opportunity for that. So this, this example, this horrible thing that's just happened in Uvalde, okay, that just doesn't traumatize the children that were at that school. I mean, it, it begins, it's like a drop into a lake, you know, a rock, it starts to, so the waves are bigger, closer. So Uvalde as a whole is traumatized. But I went home yesterday as a, as a citizen of the state of Texas, really angry and upset. So were my staff. I mean, we run a mental health clinic here and people were very upset. So, you know, it traumatizes people as it works its way out. So churches being equipped to deal with trauma. And I mean, again, I don't have any problem with offering spiritual guidance and comfort. I think that's tremendously important. Pray with somebody, be present with somebody, listen to their feelings, uh, provide them with some you know, guidance from the scriptures. But hey, what about also beginning to help them process that trauma? I mean, there's nothing wrong with using you know, psychological interventions that we know are effective. 
I mean, you, you help people that have cancer by offering them spiritual guidance and comfort and, and support while they're going to an oncologist. We can do the same thing for people that have been traumatized. So again, I think it's about having a mentally health equipped church. So again, remember, they are coming to the church mm -hmm. first. And I think we just need to be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. I heard recently someone say, a pastor saying, oh, mental health isn't an issue for our church. No one in our church struggles. And I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I've heard that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not correct. But I, you know, they're definitely all like what you said there. They're already there. They're already there. They're already there. They're in the church, but they're also coming to the mm. church. And they they don't walk in and usually say, I'm having a mental health problem. Right. They, they describe some symptom. You know, yeah. I'm not getting along with my wife. I lost my job. I, I'm really, not sleeping well. Right. I'm not sleeping well. Yeah. You know, and, you know, when I have, I've had pastors tell me, well, I've never had anybody come in and tell me they had a mental health problem. And I, I don't doubt they don't come in and say that. But also, you know, churches that uh, over-spiritualize mental health related issues, uh, you're less likely to ever have anybody come to you because they know what they're going to get. They're going to come in and tell you, I'm not doing well. And you're going to go, well, you just need to pray more. You're not a good Christian. You know, if your faith was stronger, that would go away. Um, and so, you know, I think pastors need to be very careful how they talk about kind of offhanded, you know, comments from the pulpit can be very, very hurtful. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, become a church where uh, you know, it's a grace oriented church where people feel comfortable talking about their problems. Uh, and I promise you, you'll grow your church. Uh, you'll have more people come to the church than leave the church. That's what I keep telling people too. <laughs> Talk about it. Yeah. yeah. So it's a fact. I mean, we, we do training in churches all over the country and, and churches that have, have adopted that approach. They'll, I mean, I can give you pastor after pastor that'll tell you it absolutely grew our church. There's no doubt about mm. it. But church growth is a side effect. That's not the goal. Absolutely. That's just that's just the benefit. I mean, you know, the, according to the scriptures, it's not really about numbers of, you know, it, it, God, God has given us a message uh, and we are and, and, and he has he has told us to love our brothers and sisters and to share that message with uh, the world that that doesn't know him. Uh, and, you know, he called prophets that he told no one's ever going to listen to. Mm. Good luck, Jeremiah. You know, uh, you know, good luck, Hosea. You know, and so the you know that it's not about numbers. It's about it's about individuals. And, you know, I think a William Carey went to India to be a, a missionary. He was there for like six years before one person. Wow came to know the Lord. And during that time, he lost one of his children. He lost his wife to disease. I mean, six years or more. Uh, it, it's not about, it, it's about being obedient to God. It's about this relationship, not how many people I can get to show up at my church, you know? Yeah. So. so to summarize our conversation today, just to make sure that we're make, uh, have a clear action, um, uh, action or takeaway is that those who are violent are often depicted as uh, someone who suffers from mental illness and that the vast majority are not there actually. Yeah, it's just not it's true. Not true. And the risk factors that you identified, um, you highlighted in your, in your book, madness to grace, uh, a checklist that you, that could help guide pastors and caregivers through what are some of the risk factors for violence? And then talking about the role of the church, those four steps for prevention, and then that postvention or that post support after a violent act has occurred. 
after a post-traumatic, after a traumatic event. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The support through there. Um, in your research, in your research around violence and, and faith and mental health, these, these three, um, the, the circles overlap. What would be the action or takeaway that you would be, would love to be able to share with a pastor? Well, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that has brought me out of academia to be to take over the Hope and Healing Center and, and, and to do what I do today and the writings and things that I do uh, really is the fact that, you know, this statistic that has just fascinates me that people that are struggling with mental health related issues in distress are more likely to go to a clergy first before a mental health care provider or physician, yet less than 10% of clergy ever make a referral. So the majority of people with mental health problems in the United States never receive any treatment. That's just a fact. But we have a God sending them to us. And in this mass shooting thing is just a symptom of our fallen, broken world. Uh, and we have an incredible opportunity, both through, through mental health uh, access issues that the church can be involved in, and through the transformation of families and and individuals and the circumstances that they live in to really impact that. Uh, and so, you know, we don't have to go out and make some big political statement. We just need to be the church. Uh, we need to care for people like Jesus cared for people. Uh, you know, he wanted to help people where they were. Uh, you know, the man born blind, you know, he healed his uh, blindness, yet never revealed himself to the man until later. You know, and so he was worried about where the man was at that moment. Uh, and so he built that relationship. So go into your community and begin to offer support groups. Go into your community, offer parenting classes. Go into your community and uh, offer tutoring at the local under-resourced elementary school. And I'll tell you what, God will send people to your church in droves. Okay, uh, because that's what it is to be the church. It's not just about coming up with 45 minutes of really good sermon points on Sunday morning. It's about it's about showing people Jesus every day of the week. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action today. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church and community. And don't forget to check out those resources linked in the show notes. And I would love to stay connected. If you want to be notified when a new episode goes live, make sure you follow. Thanks for connecting. Take care.